0: Let's turn to Exodus chapter 20, where we will pick up where we left off, as it were. Exodus chapter 20, it should be page 61, if you're using one of the pew Bibles and you don't know how to navigate that. What I want to do is what we were doing each week as we've taken these Ten Commandments one at a time. I will read all of them together, and then we will briefly pray and begin to hear to see what God has to say through His Word. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Spirit says. "'And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery.' You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that what we know not, you will teach us. What we have not, you will give us. And what we are not, you will make us, for the sake of Jesus Christ our Savior, in His name, amen. So we're resuming our journey through Exodus. Where we're at, Israel has been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea on dry ground. They've started their journey in the wilderness, and they've come to the foot of Mount Sinai where God gives them His law so that they will know what it means to live as His rescued people, as a holy nation. The foundation of that law, of God's law, rests on these Ten Commandments. Uh, Next week, we will see how the other commandments spring forth from this and get into all manner of places in society. But these Ten Commandments are summed up by Jesus basically telling us that they are meant to teach us how to love God and how to love one another. The first four being how to love God, the last six how to love one another. But If you're not careful as you're reading through these, you just hear those and you think, well, I'm not doing too bad as I go along through there because I don't bow down to false gods. I don't use the Lord's name as a swear word. Uh, I'm not a murderer. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not a thief or a liar. I'm actually not all that bad. I'm feeling pretty good about this checklist here. But as we've actually thought about each one, it's become clear that we actually are all that bad, that meditating on these commandments hasn't made our innocence clearer. It's made our guilt clearer. It's made our need for a savior clearer. And even if we thought we had escaped guilt to this point, we're not going to get out of the Ten Commandments without getting got. Because this last one bypasses external things altogether. You can't mistake it for a merely external commandment. None of the others are either, but You can't be mistaken here because this goes right through the skin and the muscle all the way down through the bone all the way to the heart. And says, you shall not covet. Now, what I want to do as we think about this commandment is just to think about three things. How to understand it, how to diagnose it, and how to overcome it. All right? So, first, how to understand coveting. Covet is not a word that we use. My guess is, apart from maybe reading this text ahead of this morning, you didn't use the word covet this week at all in normal conversation. But covet is a word that speaks of desire, of longing, of wanting. And we, as human beings, are creatures of desire. That is our nature. We have very physical desires, right? Hunger and thirst. I saw some of you waving the bulletin in your face. You're, you have a desire to cool down, right? Um, amen. Uh, so, but then our desires actually go further than that, don't they? Because, and it separates us from all of the other creatures, We have things like goals, aspirations. We want something out of our lives, fulfillment, purpose. We have desires for our children, desires for friendships, desires for marriage, desires for our career, desires for our church, desires for our future. We have smaller desires that fill our day, don't we? Don't you have particular desires for traffic when you're running a bit behind? You do. You have a particular desire for that we have a particular desire for the weather we would like to see today for the political information we want to hear we have desires for how how our technology works from one moment to the next what do you mean i have to wait three seconds for this to load up we have desires we have desires for our sports team don't we probably in this room well not probably I know in this room there are conflicting desires about the outcome of this afternoon's contest. Some of you don't want the Colts to win. (laughs) So we have all these kinds of desires. We are wanting creatures, aren't we? We have wanters and our wanters want. I have one, you have one. Every human being is a creature of desire. And in biblical terms, these deeper and greater desires come from the heart. My heart is the control center of my life. Your heart is the control center of your life. It's like the, the controller of a video game. Whether you're playing Fortnite or whether you're playing Sims or whether you're playing FIFA soccer or some other sports game, that guy that you're controlling doesn't, that gal that you're controlling doesn't go anywhere unless you move the sticks and push the buttons. The heart is like that controller. We don't think, speak, or act apart from the heart's involvement, apart from the heart producing something. The heart drives everything we do. The heart drives our words. The heart drives our thoughts. The heart drives our actions. Jesus said, when explaining what defiles us, he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And just in that list, you see thoughts, you see words, you see actions. So this desiring, coveting, is Is an expression of the heart. Now, in reality, the word covet, the Hebrew word covet, is actually a pretty neutral word. It can actually be used to express right desires. It's used in Psalm 19, when David writes that the word of God is much to be desired. Are they much to be desired are they than fine gold? God's words even much fine gold. That to be desired, that's this same coveting word, this longing, this wanting. It's a good thing to to want to be married. Proverbs 18 says, he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It's good to want to have children. They are a blessing from the Lord. Paul tells Timothy, if any man desires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. It is good. So, you see, the Tenth Commandment isn't saying we all need to become stoics. We all just need to put aside all desire. All desire is wrong. That is not what the Tenth Commandment is saying. The Tenth Commandment is prohibiting desires that have gone wrong, sinful desires. So, think about that. We, we do have wrong desires, the, the, the coveting that's spoken of here, that's forbidden here, is the desire for what belongs to someone else. What, to be more, even more general than that, what is not rightfully ours. See, desires can actually go wrong in a, a few different ways. Desires can go wrong because you desire the wrong object, the wrong thing. You should not desire that. Desires can go wrong when you desire even a good thing too much so that it rules your life, like the desire to be married or the desire to have children or anything like that can become, can actually rise to the level of even ruling your life like a god, like it's an idol in your life. You can also, desires go wrong um, when they are not prioritized correctly, where other things are coming, where it becomes before other things. I want to get married. Um, You're not a Christian, but I really want to get married. You see what I'm saying? The priority is wrong. It just gets misprioritized. Anyway, that's an aside. This coveting is when we desire things that are not rightfully ours. This is the wrong object. Now, it can be the wrong priority. It can also be the wrong amount, but it is the wrong thing. We're not coveting, we're not wanting the right thing. Notice how it's written, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What's happening here, some have taken this in history to be two separate commands. That there's the first phrase, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and then the rest is a separate command altogether. I don't think that's right. I think what's happening here is you're going from general to specific. Because when he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, he's not talking about the physical structure. He's talking about your household. It's like when somebody says, is your house in order? They don't necessarily mean, are all the things put away? They mean, is the household in order? So then he goes to specifics. Not his wife, not his servants, not his livestock. And just in case you think this list is meant to limit the things you're not allowed to want, God finishes by saying, or anything else that is your neighbor's. All means all, right? Anything else is anything else. That woman's husband, that man's wife, their children, that friend's parents who are more lenient than mine, her intellect, his job, her title, his paycheck, her car his game system her bicycle his phone her computer their house anything that is your neighbors anything you walk in and you see these kitchen appliances and these things are amazing and you think i oh, mine i that mm, me Right? Anything that is your neighbor's, that is not rightfully yours. Now, some people will wonder now, wait a second, hold on. We're just talking about desires here, right? What is the real problem? My desires don't hurt anyone. Well, that's actually a really good and important question. There are two problems with coveting that we ought to think about, apart from the fact that God says you ought not to, okay? The first is that coveting demonstrates a lack of faith in God. You know, Paul asked the Corinthians, what, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, everything you have was given by God, everything that anybody has. So God is the one, the Bible says, who puts together husbands and wives, right? God is the one who calls some to singleness. God is the one who gives children. God is the one who gives intellect and ability and skills. God is the one who distributes resources. And you see, when we covet, we actually don't trust that God is good and wise in doing His job. We think he has made an error. We think he's holding out on us. We don't trust him for what we need. We, we don't trust him when he doesn't give me what, we, what I think he ought to give me. You see, it's like Dangles said, Lord, I will trust you when you begin to give me everything that I could want. This is the heart of coveting. The heart of coveting doesn't believe that God loves us if he doesn't give us what we want. It's a lack of faith. Coveting looks at God and says, I know better than you do what I need and what I should have. We don't think about it that way, do we? We don't think, well, coveting isn't an affront to God, it's just something that's in here. No, 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 no. It looks at him and says, you're not good you haven't given me what I want and it's a good thing that I want God I want to have a child I want my children to walk with you I want a better job to provide for my family better but you must not be good if you keep giving it to all those other people, but not to me. Coveting demonstrates a lack of faith in God. Coveting also demonstrates a lack of love toward others. Romans 13 is very interesting. Listen to the Romans thirteen nine. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that compelling to you? Doesn't that make you want to raise your hand in class and ask Paul what he's talking about? Because after all, I understand that murder is unloving. I understand that adultery is unloving. I understand that theft is unloving. But how is it that my desires are unloving? Don't, isn't, isn't it only unloving if other people feel unloved? Well, apparently not. Because that's not what he says. It's not saying it doesn't matter whether anybody feels like you're unloving you are unloving if you covet it's also wrong to start thinking this way because we pretend like desires don't come out as if desire just kinda hangs out in there and sips on lemonade and just kinda takes a break and just like you know I'm in here no big deal you don't have to let me out that's not what desire does Thomas Chalmers said it this way: Under the impulse of desire, man feels himself urged onward in some path or pursuit of activity for its gratification. In other words, when you want something, you want to go. You start planning, you start thinking, you start scheming, you start imagining, you start going. That's what I want. And so these desires can come out in our actions and desires can come out in our attitudes. But friends, we are to be loving both in actions and in our attitudes toward others. Coveting actually robs another person of the love that you owe them. Paul says, Owe no one anything except this, that you love one another. Say, I don't owe you anything. Why, actually, you're wrong. The Bible says we owe each other. We owe each other to love one another. And to think that coveting doesn't hurt anyone is wrong. It's one of the fallacies of several other uh, uh, immoral activities in our society. To To think that, oh, this is just about me and my private life, and it doesn't hurt anyone. Friends, let me tell you something. Even if I could convince you of nothing else, the Bible would convince you of this. Coveting hurts you. Your coveting hurts you. Your coveting hurts you. Now I think you can make all kinds of arguments that it hurts other people, and it's right because desires don't just stay in there. Coveting will condemn you to God's judgment. Coveting hurts. Coveting breaks relationship with God. What is it that happened in the garden? Eve saw that the fruit was to be desired. Same word. She coveted the fruit. Coveting is not just some throwaway command. It's actually one of the most invasive Because it gets down there and it squirms around in your soul and it won't let go of you. So we have to understand coveting. Second thing, how do you diagnose coveting? I mean, we have desires all the time, right? And we can have good desires and we can have bad desires and we have wrong desires and we can covet other people's stuff. How? How do I actually know if I'm coveting? How do I know that I've gone from, boy, I, I would one day, I'd like to be married to. I want what he has. Okay, how? How? how what are some clues that you might uh, see in your own life? Now, uh, if you go to the doctor, you've got some kind of something going on. You sit down. What's the? I mean. I made a doctor's appointment this last week and I couldn't even get off the phone with just a time and a day. I had to be asked all manner of questions. I was asked 15 different questions about how I feel feel, and what what about this symptom, what about this symptom, what about this symptom, what about this symptom, what about this symptom? So you know, if you read the symptoms of things, some things overlap, right? This symptom could be this, it could also be that. It's actually the same here. So I think all of these could point to coveting, some of them more clearly than others but they could, you know, be other problems. So let's just sit down in the doctor's office and listen to these symptoms. First, and probably the most obvious, there are eight of them, and I'm going to go very, very quickly, so you're just going to have to fly. I'm not going to spend much time on any of them. Sinful action. if. If your desires drive you to sinful action, then the desires themselves are sinful. This is what Achan said after he had taken the plunder that he wasn't supposed to. He gets caught, he gets singled out, and he says, I I saw it, I coveted it, and I took it. He saw it, he coveted, and he took it. If you find yourself wanting to swipe, wanting to take, moving to Moving into flirtatious relationship, moving into just, you know, that they'll never notice that that's gone. They'll never notice that. Sinful action is a sure sign. Number two, daydreaming. Your mind wanders to whatever it is, daydreaming about being married to her. Daydreaming about being married to him, about having that job, about driving that car, about playing that game system, about having that income. You lose yourself in the pleasure of the fantasy. Friend, that's coveting. Your desires are out of whack when you start daydreaming about having the things that other people have for yourself. Number three, misplaced hope you may actually come to believe that your life will never be enjoyable never be right until you have that job or you have that boyfriend or you have that degree or you have that phone or you have that whatever that whatever it is if I don't have that I'll never really be satisfied because without it you think there's no hope for a really good life Not if I'm stuck in this marriage when I could be in that one. Which is the most ludicrous and deceptive thought on the planet. Look, men, I love each one of you. But none of you are the solution to another woman's marriage problems. Right? Women, love all of you. You are not the solution to another man's marriage problems ever Number 4 stingy attitude those who covet do not enjoy giving <laughs> the coveting mindset wants wants to have what you have the giving mindset wants to bless you with what i have they're polar opposite in mindset you can't covet and be generous at the same time. Oh, you may give. You know, somebody may be over you or you may just feel compelled or it's just like, it just I have to, it's a duty. But God loves a cheerful giver and there's no one who's coveting who is also a cheerful giver. Number five, self-focus. Coveting just focuses our minds and our words on ourselves. Why do they get that and I don't? I deserve it. I mean, everybody has it better than me. I certainly deserve to have it better than them. Coveting actually encourages the I deserve language. If you find yourself often thinking about what you deserve that other people have, you're coveting, friend. Uh, Relational distance is number six. Whoever it is that has what you want, you can have bitter thoughts toward them. You cannot rejoice when something good happens with them. You don't feel like talking to them or serving them or loving them. You distance yourself from them. When you don't enjoy being around those who have something that you might want, coveting. Seven is emotional disturbance. When we are denied what we want and we're reminded of it by seeing that person, by thinking of that person, it can show up in our emotions. It can show up in becoming very angry. It can show up in becoming intensely sad just by being easily provocable during the day because I don't have in my life what I want. And number eight is spiritual distance. Because, hey, you've been raised in the church. You know who gives out this stuff. You know who gave that man that wife. You know who gave that coworker that job. You know who's behind it all. And so maybe your spiritual disciplines begin to fade. You start avoiding the church. You start avoiding Christian friends. Because behind it all, you know that... My problem is that God is not giving me what I want, so I'm just going to keep him at a distance. Now, you could probably think of many more than that, but I just wanted to get your mind started thinking about these things. Because desires don't just sit in there and do nothing. They come out. They come out in emotion. They come out in action. They come out in your spiritual life. They come out. They break out. They're like water. They don't just stay there. They find a way. I'm getting through. And so once you identify that, then the question becomes, how do you overcome it, right? How am I supposed to overcome coveting? Well, that brings us to our third question, third uh, heading here. The way to overcome coveting is to do what the apostle Paul did. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentment is the path to overcoming coveting. But being content doesn't just mean I'm just gonna settle for second best. You know, it's just kind of this head hung and hands up like this and say, well, I could have a lot better. I could have what they have, but... I guess I'll just be happy with what I have. That's just the happiest person you know, isn't it? No. Contentment means that we trust that what God has given me is what's best for me. And if God has kept something from me or given it to someone else or that person to someone else, that is also best. That's what contentment believes. When contentment looks at what others have, it doesn't covet, it doesn't long for it. It rejoices in God's kindness toward that person. It smiles rather than folding its arms and sulking. The prayer of contentment is the one that is in Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches; feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, "Who is the Lord?" or lest i be poor and steal and profane the name of my god it is to say provide for me lord but only provide what is needed so that i don't get proud so that i don't trust in riches look money can buy you medicine but it cannot buy you health just just give me this day my daily bread are you content Have you thought of contentment as settling for second best? Have you learned this lesson? Have you learned what Paul has learned? That in whatever situation you are to be content with whatever God has provided? If not, let me tell you a secret. You won't learn contentment from this sermon. And you won't learn contentment in a classroom. You will learn contentment on the mean streets of life. That's where you learn contentment. Because you don't learn contentment by God giving you everything you could want and then you say, oh, I'm content now. No, 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 no. You learn contentment actually in exactly the opposite way by not having the thing that you would want. And then in that, learning to trust that God is still good, God is still wise, going to His Word and believing what it says, walking by faith in His Word than by sight in my life. Only then can you learn contentment. You're not going to walk out of here more content than you did coming in. Hopefully, we'll all walk out of here thinking, I need to learn contentment. That's the goal. And then the classroom is actually outside of here. The classroom is in your home. The classroom is at your job. The classroom is at the doctor's office. The classroom is everywhere that you will go this week. That's where the classroom is. But here's the problem. (laughs) Coveting is a heart issue. How many times in your life have you changed your own heart? Let me answer. Zero. There's a serious problem here. I want to move from coveting to contentment. My heart must change, but I cannot change my heart. Jeremiah 13 says it. Can Ethiopian change his skin? The leopard has spots. Then you can change. (laughs) That stings, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm not doing well in school, I can just work harder and bring my grade up. If my work has gotten sloppy, I can refocus and redouble my efforts and get back on track. But if my heart's gone wrong, I'm stuck, I am powerless to do anything. I need someone to do it for me. And God said He is the one who can. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In fact, that's one way to talk about just being a Christian, isn't it? To have a new heart, a new wanter, thumping away with desires and wants that are put in us by God Himself. There's no 12-step program that's going to change your heart. There's no therapy that'll change your heart. There's no new habit you can form to change your heart. Only God changes hearts. I've told you this there's a guy named Paul in a church I served in Nashville if you're new it'll sound new to you but everybody else will be like yeah I know where this story's going and he came to me one day and he said my my, I want to marry my girlfriend but she said I have to become a Christian before we can get married so I've come here so that you can make me a Christian (laughs) and I looked at Paul and I said Paul I would love it if you could get married but I don't make Christians but God does Why don't we read the Gospel of John together? And in about six weeks' time, the Lord made a Christian out of Paul. But that's the case for us. We can't change our own hearts. God must change. You see, when Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sin... He didn't just do it to forgive us, as glorious as that is and as true as it is. He died and rose again to make us new. It was quoted earlier uh, from the baptismal that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's no hope for real change outside of Jesus. But anyone who comes to him in faith will be forgiven and changed and made new. And that is true for you today, no matter how long you've been putting out your hand toward God and saying, No thanks, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Maybe it's starting to seep in that you're not as good as you thought you were. Jesus doesn't take the good, He came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. So if you fit in that category, and we do, then Jesus can save you if you will come to him, if you will turn to him. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we still struggle with coveting and contentment, but we have God's Spirit empowering us, teaching us actually to want something more than all of that better than what they have better than a wife better than a husband better than their children better than an empty nest better than a full bank account better than a clean bill of health better than her possessions better than his position in the company just plain better the spirit teaches us and empowers us to want Jesus more than anything else, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to have him, to please him more than anything else. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Hmm. Friends, Jesus is the great treasure. He's the one. So, with God's help, do you know what we must do? We hear, You shall not covet. What are we to do then? Turn our eyes to Jesus. Look to jesus think about jesus learn of jesus set our hearts on jesus so that we are convinced more and more that he is the most desirable one in the universe that we would be captured by his beauty and enamored by his love and amazed by his grace and in awe of his goodness and overwhelmed by his mercy and eager for his reward in heaven what we need is what thomas chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection the only way that that coveting desire is going to be driven out of our flesh and out of our eyes is For us to desire Jesus Christ more than anything else. For us to desire him and his pleasure more than anything else. To covet him. Thomas Watson said if we covet after heaven more. We shall covet earth less. Friends, if we know that having Jesus and all the promises of Jesus and all the blessings of Jesus means that we truly have what we need. No matter what the circumstances of life may look like. Then we will be content. And so actually the call is the same. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ and this would be to remind you. Or whether you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and this would be to bring you to Christ the call is turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace let's pray father how we thank you that there is treasure that you Have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that there is nothing that we truly need that you withhold from us. Oh, God, how we struggle to believe that when we don't have what we think we need, when we don't have what we think we should have, when we don't have what we would even come to say we deserve. Oh, God, keep us from such things. Teach us to be content. Teach us to long for Jesus Christ and His pleasure, to glorify Him in the same way that in days gone by we would have longed for those other things and we would have planned for them and schemed for them and gone after them. Help us to go after Jesus. Help us to set our eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray for those who have never turned their eyes to him that today they would and that they would find in him a treasure beyond compare, a treasure of grace and mercy and forgiveness and life. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? And we're going to sing a brief hymn